Speaking of records, hi. <laughs> Sorry. I just had to say Kawaji Jack, and you can't even say the word records. <laughs> Record high. Hello there, and welcome back to the Europolex podcast, the only podcast on your feed that is vaccinated against the coronavirus, but not against good times. I'm Ewan Healy, and with me, of course, is Gabriel Hedengren. I'm still here. I don't go on summer holiday, Ewan. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Rude. Um, I had a lovely time away. Thanks for asking. Didn't think about politics at all. Good to hear. Um, yeah, I saw a whale. That was the highlight of my holiday. Yeah, I can't see I've ever seen a whale, actually. Well, I can. Well, I saw the back of a whale. I didn't see the whole whale. So, how's your August been? (laughs) Well, my August has been cool. I went back to Sweden, actually, for a bit. So I had some international travel experience, which was um, fun. Obviously, it's very different. And then I've just been been working and um, following all the various... um, depressing news cycles we've had but not all tragic there's also a lot of excitement that we'll we'll talk about today in terms of polls and upcoming elections so i've been super wrapped up in all of that absolutely and we were just talking before the podcast started recording that actually there's been quite a lot of news particularly in in the political sphere in europe for august which is normally a very quiet month and we will cover all of that in this episode and later on after that we're going to be joined by dr joanna shostek a lecturer in political communication at the university of glasgow and an associate fellow at the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House. She will be helping to contextualize the upcoming Russian elections and letting us know what we should be paying attention to before, during, and after those elections. And she is an incredibly qualified guest, really, really good interview to listen to, not least because she taught me in my first year at university, Gabriel. Well, look at you. She must be she must be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Before all of that, here's a little message about how you can support us and our headlines from across the continent and actually how you can get involved as well. Do you want to be one of the volunteers that are behind your Blex in this podcast? We're currently on the lookout for an audiovisual editor that can help our podcast and YouTube team create and edit content like what you're hearing right now. But only better, of course, we're trying to improve all the time. If you're interested in joining our team or know someone who would be, please do reach out to us at podcast at Europlex is run by volunteers. We aren't funded by any big donors and everything we do, including this podcast, is only possible with the help of our supporters. And we want to do more. We started sharing exclusive discussions, special content and more through our Patreon. Access all that from as little as one euro per month. Don't miss out. Support us by becoming a patron on Patreon. This week, we begin in Scotland for our headlines across the continent, where a new government has been formed in the region of the United Kingdom. Elections to the devolved legislature took place back in May, which are equivalent to a regional or state parliament across the continent, and they produced a clear victory for the Progressive Separatist Scottish National Party, or SNP, which picked up an additional seat to fall just one short of an overall majority. The SNP had governed 
as a minority since 2016, gaining support for its budgets from fellow pro-independent Scottish Green Party, as well as occasionally the Scottish Liberal Democrats. This agreement obviously could have continued for the next five years. However, the leader of the government, Nicola Sturgeon, made the decision to invite the Scottish Green Party, who have seven seats in the Scottish Parliament, to a more formal governing arrangement. Members of both parties approved an agreement which will see Green ministers enter government for the first time, not just in Scotland, but anywhere in the UK in history. The cooperation agreement between the SNP and the Greens goes further than a confidence to supply agreement, but falls short of a full formal coalition. It's been modelled on an arrangement organised in New Zealand between Jacinda Ardern's Labour Party and the New Zealand Green Party, which sees the Scottish Greens have agreed to support the SNP in confidence votes and on several key policy areas in exchange for gaining two ministerial positions and a range of policy concessions, including rent controls, greater action on climate change and legislation to simplify and quicken the process of gaining gender recognition for trans people. This agreement differs most from a conventional coalition agreement in that it sets out a range of policy areas where the parties agree and as ones where they disagree, including on sex work, aviation policy, and private schools. This partnership also solidifies the Scottish Parliament's pro-independence majority, with both parties committed to holding a second independence referendum before the next election in 2026. Meanwhile, the political drama continues in Sweden. Just a few weeks after surviving a dramatic vote of no confidence, back in July that was, Prime Minister Stefan Löfven announced last week that he will be stepping down as leader of the centre-left Social Democrats and therefore as Prime Minister of Sweden at the Social Democratic Party conference in November. Löfven's decision has added an element of uncertainty ahead of next year's legislative elections, as the governing party will now unexpectedly be heading to the polls with new leadership. According to media and insider sources, the leading candidate to take over from Löfven is current finance minister Magdalena Andersson, who is seen as Löfven's own favourite for the role and someone who would provide continuity at what is a very fragile time for Swedish politics with a razor-thin majority in parliament for the current government, uh, which became evident during the governmental crisis earlier this summer. If Andersson does get elected, she would become Sweden's first ever female prime minister. According to recent polling, the Social Democrats have around 25%, which puts them in first place of all Swedish parties, but well below its 2018 election result, which was its worst ever since Sweden got universal suffrage. And we're definitely learning from Germany at the moment that the favoured successor of the long-time incumbent isn't a safe bet in all cases. No. Keeping on with government news, we go to the Netherlands, where almost six months after parliamentary elections and nine months after the collapse of the previous government in the Netherlands still doesn't have a government. On September 2nd, Marietta Hamer, who was the sixth so-called informateur since the election, resigned from her duty of finding a coalition of parties willing to form a government. She basically gave up just as the previous five who had preceded her had also given up. The current deadlock in the government formation revolves around parties ruling out each other. The centre-right VVD and CDA have blocked coalition with PVDA and Green Left. The D66 have ruled out a coalition with the Christian Union. The reason behind these parties' unwillingness to compromise is that not many expect a new government to survive for very long, meaning that snap elections would be likely either way. 
The issues that split the parties in the previous government are still unsolved, and three tough parliamentary inquiries are underway. The most controversial of these is, of course, the so-called childcare benefits scandal and affair, which led to the collapse of the previous third Ruta government back in January. Add the growing distrust between the party's leaders since the scandal concerning Ruta's alleged attempt to remove the infamous MP Peter Omzik that almost led to Ruta being removed from office back in April, and you have a recipe for a very unstable political scenario and thus government. The next step to try and form a government and find a coalition that would work is informateur is Johan Remkes from Ruta's VVD. But instead of trying to find a majority government coalition, he will look to find a way to get a minority government to be formed, something that the Netherlands has very little experience with. The likeliest outcome is at the moment a minority government of Vivide, D66 and CDA. But with personal relationship between these parties' political leaders, the question is, of course, how long would it work for? Who knows? I have no idea. It's very confusing to follow. I mean, I know I'm from Sweden, which is a proportional system with lots of different intrigues and alliances, but we compared to the Netherlands, it's it's nothing really. So yeah, it's a very hard one, hard nut to crack for sure. Meanwhile, in Romania, the center-right government of Florin Cicu has been plunged into chaos following the sacking of center-liberal USR plus politician Stelian Ion from his job as justice minister over a disagreement related to a government infrastructure program. At the same time, there's a close contest within the National Liberal Party for party chairmanship between Shichu uh, and the former Prime Minister Ludovic Orban. The current drama results from Yon suggesting that a government infrastructure program has been used to buy favor for the Prime Minister's party amongst regional landowners ahead of the upcoming local elections as well. As a result of the sacking, Yon and his party have withdrawn their support from the government coalition, thus denying the Prime Minister a parliamentary majority. Shichu accused the USR Plus of being opposed to the modernization of Romania and has begun talks with other parties to stay in power. Regarding the infighting in the National Liberal Party, Florin Cicu is hoping to replace Ludovic Orban as party chairman in the party leadership election next month, and his success may very well depend on support from local politicians, which seems to be something that might potentially be tying these two stories together. So some intricate House of Cards level drama in Romanian politics, so obviously we'll, we'll keep it posted on uh, what happens with the National Liberal Party and, and the top leadership in Romania. Uh, but yeah, some August drama right there, Ewan. Yeah, for sure. Moving now to electoral news in Estonia, where Alan Karis, the director of the Estonian National Museum, has been elected the president of Estonia on Tuesday by the country's parliament. The president-elect was the only candidate and he was endorsed by the two ruling parties, the Liberal Reform Party and the centrist Centre Party, and will assume office on October the 11th. Since the two ruling parties do not have the necessary supermajority alone in Parliament, MPs from other parties had to vote for him as well. That didn't happen adequately in the first round of voting when he received the support of 63 MPs, that's five shy of the necessary two-thirds. In the second round, however, 72 MPs voted for Karis to be the new president of Estonia, with a lot of MPs that had previously left their ballots blank, seemingly giving them their support a second time round. Now, the role of the Estonian president, as I'm sure you're aware, is largely ceremonial, but the president does have the authority to refer laws to the Supreme Court and formally appoints government ministers himself. Most of the power is, however, held by the prime minister, but it is Still an important day for Estonian democracy and uh, fans of indirect elections. At Europelex, we love all elections, don't you? And indirect, direct. But it is interesting when you follow the the indirect ones too. Uh, They obviously don't get as much attention, but they do happen. 
In other electoral news, we have seen several developments in Russian politics. The first of these has been the renaming of the Communist Party of Social Justice, KPSS, to the Russian Party of Freedom and Justice, RPSS. The party, founded in 2012 by Freemason Grandmaster of Moscow, Andrei Bogdanov, has now been accused by the Communist Party, KPRF, of being a Kremlin-backed spoiler party due to its original initials bearing the same name of the defunct Soviet Communist Party and it running candidates in various regions with the same or similar last names as KPRF candidates. The renaming of the party comes as Maxim Shevchenko was appointed its new leader. Shevchenko is a former member of KPRF that left over disputes over where he would place in the party's list in the upcoming Duma elections. In addition, recent results from non-state pollsters show the continuing decline of the governing United Russia Party, rising support for the KPRF, and the possibility that the pro-Kremlin Pensioners Party, RPPSS, and the liberal Yabloko will both enter the state Duma. The threshold for entrance into the Duma is 5% on the nationalists, which both Yabloko and RPPSS have shown capable of in recent CIPKR polls. For more information and contextualization of the upcoming elections in Russia, stick around till the end of the episode for UN's fascinating discussion with his former professor and Russia expert, Ioana Shostek. Also, this might be a good point to mention that Europlex is now on VKontakte. You can find us on vk.com forward dash Europlex. And after all that political news, it's time to move on to the most nerdiest of nerdy news in the polling highlights. And we've got a lot of them this time around, so bear with us. Starting in Poland, where the Farmers' Interest Party, AgroUnia, which is currently transforming from movement to party, achieved its all-time record high in a poll with 5.8% in the latest scenario poll by Research Partner. The movement was formed back in 2018 by a former peace councilman, Michal Kowodzijak. Speaking of record highs, where are we going? You guessed it, the Netherlands. According to the latest pale seat projection, BBB that received just one seat in the election back in March would receive seven seats if elections were held today. So the potential snap elections that we were talking about earlier in the new segment might be quite fruitful for the agrarian party. However, we still don't know what the impact will be to BPB and the Dutch party system in general when former CDA member Pieter Omzicht creates his new party, but BBB still going strong. Another party that keeps having records high is the green left Moshemo in Croatia. The party that controls the country's capital since winning the mayoral election in Zagreb back in May reached a new record high with 18.2% in the latest Ipsos poll. This rise seems to bring the party steadily to second place ahead of the centre-left SDP, which has been falling since early 2020. Staying within the EU, the right-wing Latvia First made its first appearance with 3.6 in the latest Faxim poll coming out of the country. The party was just founded by former Deputy Prime Minister Einar Slichers and two MPs formerly of the right-wing Law and Order. In the same poll, the centrist Republika made its first appearance as well, but was just 0.9%. The party was founded by former Interior Minister Sandis Girgens from right-wing PCL and former Saskana Harmony Prime Minister candidate Vyacheslav Dombrovskis. It's worth noting that this Dombrovskis is not related to Valdis Dombrovskis, the former Prime Minister and current EU Commissioner. However, he did serve as Minister for Education and Science in the Dombrovskis government. Can't move with these Dombrovskis. They're everywhere. 
Moving away from the EU, we go to Norway, where another party made its first appearance in a poll. That's the right-wing DEM party, reached 2.4% in a Kantar poll. With elections coming up in September, the party would need to reach 4% to receive full proportional representation, and the fact that it received just 1.5% in a later Kantar poll and hasn't appeared in polls of other pollsters might not be quite as promising as the 2.4% might suggest. The left-wing socialist left party, on the other hand, can certainly be satisfied with a decent rise, receiving its highest result since 2005 in a poll with 10.2% in that same Kantar poll. As discussed in our previous episode, there seems to be a red wave of some kind going on in Norway, but it'll be interesting to see how that turns out in the actual election and not just in polls. Yeah, and they've had quite dramatic shifts uh, in their campaign, even if it's still very... Um, looks very certain for for the left to get a majority. So at the beginning of the year, and even uh, just a few weeks ago, when we were covering Norway in more detail on the podcast, the center party was riding really high. So the agrarian um, sort of populist anti-EU party, and they've just completely collapsed recently from being sort of the biggest party to being third, fourth place. But a lot of that movement is, is happening sort of in, in the center to the center left. But there is some volatility. So yeah, we'll definitely look forward to the election that's coming up very soon. Another non-EU country that will hold elections this September that probably isn't getting the attention it deserves is Iceland, where the Icelandic Socialist Party reached an all-time high with 8.7% in the latest MMR poll. The left-wing party was founded in 2017 and will be contesting its first national elections on September 25th. Definitely a bit of ignored, but in fairness, when you hold your national elections the day before Germany's, you're going to be overshadowed, aren't you? You're going to be overshadowed. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of Germany... Uh, we can't not mention the polls that have been coming out for the German federal elections, which have been fascinating for all of us watching the election. In fact, ruling centre-right CDU-CSU has been falling, even reaching a new historic low of 20% in multiple polls. On the other hand, centre-left SPD has been rising and rising and rising, and it has passed the CDU to be in first place in the polls. An INSA poll showed the SPD with a lead of 5% ahead of the centre-right alliance, their largest such lead in a poll in 20 years. The lead has been repeated in an Infratest DMAP poll as well, putting the SPD at the driver's seat ahead of the upcoming elections. It's worth noting that the lead SPD had back in July 2001 was with 41% over the CDU's 35%, and it currently is 25% over 20%, showing a more fragmented party system now than we've seen for quite a long time in CDU's history. And there's going to be a lot of parties in the coming election results. Definitely. But I think... um... German politics is sort of known to be quite stale and boring, isn't it? Probably unfairly in my view, but definitely hasn't been in in recent weeks. It's been quite fascinating to see such a significant shift in in a short period of time between two major parties, you know, on different sides of that. They're governing together, but ideologically quite separate. So that's really fascinating to see that campaigns can have that effect. Definitely on the national level has been seen as quite boring for quite a long time because of how 
unbreakable Merkel's control over the political system was. But on the regional level, as we've talked about many times on this podcast, there have been some incredible stories, particularly uh, in the conflicts between the far right and the far left in the old East Germany have been all, you know, brewing away for a long time. Yeah, that's all the news from around the continent for now. Thank you for listening and do stick around for a fascinating discussion with Dr. Joanna Shostek. This month is going to be quite busy with polls and elections, as I'm sure you're all gearing up for as much as we are. So do check our website and our social media for coverage of all of it. And we will be back soon with Europlex podcast to discuss it even more. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast and want to help us grow, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform it is you're listening to us on. And of course, tell your friends, your fellow political nerds all about us. That would mean the absolute world. We love making this podcast and we love it when you guys love it. So if you've got an idea for a segment, thoughts on a topic that we should be covering, or even if you just want to say hi to us, drop us an email, podcast at europolex.eu. Hello, folks, and welcome back to the Europolex podcast. I'm very excited to sit down today with Joanna Shostek, who is a lecturer in political communication at the University of Glasgow and is part of Chatham House's research in Russia and Eurasia. Joanna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ian. Glad to be here. Great to have you on to uh, talk about the upcoming Russian elections, which uh, obviously there's been quite a lot of Russian and uh, Russia sphere news over the last 12 months, which will all be um, coming through in the, the ballot box. But before we just kick off with all of that, let's just take a little step back. For those of our listeners who don't follow Russia very closely, can you just help us a little bit understand what the state of play is in Russia at the moment when it comes to democracy and elections? Because we talk about undemocratic elections in a lot of places all around the world. What does the lack of freedom actually look like in Russia when it comes to elections? Are we talking intimidation? Are we talking just media control? Are we talking uh, anything of that kind? Can you just give us a bit of a, a bit of a concept of all of that? Um, so there's, there isn't much left of what you might call democracy in Russia, unfortunately. Um, these are authoritarian elections, and the purpose of them is more to sort of give a sense of legitimacy to, to the, the incumbents rather than to offer um, the electorate a, a genuine choice. The restrictions on choice and, and the sort of limitations on freedom take various different forms. Um, probably the most high profile sort of restriction, limitation of freedom is, is the imprisonment of leading opposition activists. So we all know about Alexei Navalny imprisoned, um, but many of the, the activists that form part of his team have been forced to leave the country. And so there's, there just isn't space at the moment in Russia for um, genuine critics of the Kremlin to, to kind of organize um, and campaign and, and participate in elections. You mentioned the media. Um, so there's also a lot of pressure on the more independent um, news sources at the moment. Many of the, the more independent news sources have been labeled as, as foreign agents, which makes it really, really difficult for them to operate, um, for them to present an, an alternative perspective, alternative opinions to the electorate. And there's a sort of, I guess, sense of risk and uncertainty surrounding, you know, if, if people want to follow opposition politics, get involved in opposition politics, they, they know there's, there will be a risk to themselves if, if, they, if they want to do that. So, so all of that just creates a, a very unlevel playing field. Yeah, that, those are probably the, the, the major things to mention. So why then is an election like that if in an authoritarian context like this, why is it even worth watching for those of us who follow Russia? I mean, it does 
elections tell us something about the, the strength of the, the existing regime, because even though the electorate lack a, a genuine choice, they do still have ways of expressing um, their dis dissatisfaction with the status quo. So you can look at turnout, for example, you know, are, are the voters coming out to cast their vote? Because if you have, you know, more than half of voters staying at home, that suggests that they're, they're disengaged, that there's the support perhaps for, for, for the Putin system is, is limited. You can also look at, you know, to what extent vote counts um, are actually um, manipulated. I mean, obviously that depends on vote rigging being caught and, and reported, but, um, you know, if, if there are reports of vote rigging, look at, you know, does that generate protest? How widespread are these reports? Because, you know, for, for most of the sort of past decade, the way that elections are managed in Russia, it hasn't been a question of rigging the vote count. It's been much more about making this unlevel playing field. And if the regime is forced into rigging the vote count, it's a change in the system. It's, it's a weakening of, 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 the, of the incumbent sort of power holders, um, so to speak. Yeah, we talk about the Russian regime here, and obviously we're talking about the authoritarianism surrounding um, Vladimir Putin as an individual who's dominated Russian politics for the best part of two decades now. Are these elections about anything else other than him? Obviously, he's not on the ballot paper. These are uh, Duma national parliament elections. Only his party, not him personally, is on the ballot paper. Is he still the focal point for most people? I would say that Putin represents the system. So, you know, he's he's, he's part of a, of a bigger system. You, know, you wouldn't want to sort of... Uh, make the mistake of, of, of seeing him as the, the, the grand puppet master, you know, pulling all the strings, but he, he does represent the system that's been in, in place, the regime that's been in place in Russia for, for many years now. Um, and so to some extent, these elections, you know, most elections in Russia are a, a kind of vote on, on the system. You know, are people still happy with the status quo, more or less accepting of the status quo, or are they trying to challenge it? And, you know, you can look at what the opposition parties are doing in Russia. So, for example, Navalny has set up this, this system called smart voting, which is, you know, voters can use an app to find out which candidate in which um, constituency has the best chance of, of ousting the regime representative. Um, and, and, and that is a way for, you know, if you like it, for a pro protest vote to be to be cast, even if it doesn't really change the balance of power. Ultimately, you know, that there are ways and means for, for the for voters to, to show their, their satisfaction or dissatisfaction with, with the status quo and with, with the Putin system. Um, and that's that's something that's quite sort of interesting to, to follow. Yeah, and something particularly obviously is that the moment we've seen in the ratings polls that come out fairly regularly um, for Putin from both state-affiliated and non-state-affiliated pollsters, we've seen ratings of, of, of Vladimir Putin at some of their uh, lowest his disapproval at some of the highest levels that we've seen throughout his entire regime. What is behind that? I would say the the key factor is people's sense of economic well-being or lack of it because the, I mean the Putin's ratings um, and United Russia's ratings really took a very sharp and noticeable dip um, in, in summer 2018 because that was when they tried to, to push through pension reforms so raising the pension age which was seriously unpopular and it was unpopular amongst Putin's base if you like amongst the, the, the base of, of United Russia voters and, and they haven't rolled back that pension reform um, sub substantially so people I think are, are still dissatisfied with that and just in general you know it's it's a struggle at the moment economically for, for many many Russians um, opinion polls show that you know families are 
are struggling even to, to manage, you know, putting food on the table, household bills, that kind of thing. Um, cost of living is, is rising and, and a struggle for many people. So that, I think, more than anything, ex explains um, yeah, the, the relatively low approval ratings um, for, for, for Putin, even though most Western politicians or politicians in the UK would probably be glad to kind of have, to have the level of support that, that Putin has within Russia. But as you said, over, over time, um, it's, it's relatively no, low now. Yeah, that's a, it's obviously that's a place where you look at the trends as opposed to the individual numbers, because as you say, uh, most Western politicians have worse approval ratings than most dictators, and so would, would like them in that way. Obviously, outside of Russia, the story that sort of dominated our understanding of Russian politics this year has been the events surrounding, as you mentioned, Alexei Navalny and his uh, alleged poisoning and then arrest. But something that I think a lot of people in the uh, the West will have missed out on is the sort of protests that have gone on through this year around particularly um, corruption in the Russian regime and his uh, Putin's palace expose, Alexei Navalny's expose on, on various bits of corruption within the regime. Is that something else that's dominating voters' minds as well as the economic um, downturn at the moment? I think it would be more accurate to say that those um, issues, you know, corruption and, and um, the sort of scandals that have been uncovered, they they dominate the, the, the minds of a minority of the electorate because a, a very large number of Russians uh, are simply apathetic about politics. Um, and there's this attitude that, um, well, yes, of course, corruption. We've always had corruption. There will always will be corruption. If we replaced the current lot, the, the, the next lot would be corrupt too. So there is that kind of sense of, um, I, think, I guess, fatalism is, 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 the, is the, perhaps the word. Um, so, so some people will just kind of, um, yeah, let all that um, pass, pass them by, if you like. But there is, um, you know, a sizable minority, perhaps, I mean, it's hard, I probably sh shouldn't put a, put a figure on it, but, you know, maybe 20-25% that, that, that pay attention to those kinds of things um, and do care, and those would be the ones that, you, you know, the potential protest group, I guess. And what will you be paying attention then over the next few months as these election results unfold and then in the aftermath? Is there anything that you're uh, expecting or anything you're watching out for uh, as the election comes that our uh, followers might be particularly interested in paying attention to as well? I will be looking for evidence of sort of signs of the scale of the dissatisfaction with the regime, basically. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, you know they'll there's this attempt to organize smart voting to sort of oust the, the regime candidates um, and replace them with literally any any other alternative to the, the regime favored candidates. You know, does that will that work at all now that Navalny's in, in jail and they've been trying to put put pressure on, um, you know, Apple and these other places where you can get the app, you know, to, to who's winning that battle um, between smart voting and, and, and the regime? I think we should watch for evidence that vote counts are being rigged at any scale, um, because the more the regime has to rig vote counts, I think the more it puts itself at risk. Um, you can sort of look to neighbouring Belarus to see just um, the, the, the protest potential connected with, with actually rigging votes rather than just preventing opposition candidates from, from competing. Um, so, so those kinds of things I think are interesting. And, and just, I guess, um, I mean, I'm not expecting any radical, particularly political changes in, in Russia after these elections, but to see, um, you know, how the regime responds to the outcome of the vote, you know, because things have been getting more and more oppressive over the past year, 
you know, is that going to continue? Um, or might they consider sort of relaxing a little bit once the elections have, have passed? Um, all, all that's of interest um, to me and probably others. Yeah, absolutely. The things that we'll be paying attention to. And I'm uh, also watching very closely on that um, matter of the aggression of the tactics of the Putin regime and, and whether the election year is, is going to be a sort of focal point for that or whether it's it's something that's more of a new normal um, in Russia. Um, Joanna, thank you very much for coming onto the podcast. This has been really, really interesting. And I know a lot of our followers want to know more about and try and understand more about what goes on in Russian politics uh, as much as there is politics in the conventional sense. So thank you very much for helping us shed some light on that. You're very welcome. Thank you, Ian. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the EuropeLex podcast. To stay up to date with European politics, make sure you subscribe. And of course, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Telegram, and YouTube. We're spreading across as many platforms as we can. Uh, you can find us at EuropeLex.eu and at EuropeLex across all social media, except Instagram, where we're at at Europe underscore Lex. See you next time. You've been listening to the EuropeLex podcast, hosted by me, Ewan Healy, and my colleague, Gabriel Hedengren. The managing editor was Polychronis Karampolas. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, Matthew Nicholson, Yorgos Kokoris, Guim Ferreira de Sender, and Yanis Arshakian. The music was by Jose Alvarado, and everything we do is possible because of our patrons on Patreon. Cool, cool, cool.